turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 6. Mark, chapter number 6. here this morning in verse number 45 and read to the end of the chapter and we'll be taking a look at these verses here this morning mark 6 45 the bible says in straight way he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before unto bethsaida while he sent away the people and when he had sent them away he departed into a mountain to pray and when even was come the ship was in the midst of the sea and he was alone on the land And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary unto them. And about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. For they all saw him, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them, and saith unto them, Be of good cheer, it is I, be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased. And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure and wondered. But they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. And when they had passed over, they came into the land of Gennesaret and drew to the shore. And when they were come out of the ship straightway, they knew him and ran through that whole region round about and began to carry about in beds those that were sick where they heard he was. And whithersoever he entered into villages or cities or country, they laid the sick in the streets and besought him that they might touch him, if it were but the border of his garment. And as many as touched him were made whole. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you for the truth we've heard, Lord, through song and music this morning. And God, I pray as we open up your word, Lord. God, I pray, Lord, you would help us to have receptive hearts, Lord. Help us to be, Lord, just have our ears attuned, Lord, to the truth of your word. Just I pray that our hearts would be teachable and humble, Lord, as we gather before your word this morning. God, I pray you'd help me this morning as I teach and as I preach, Lord. Just give me clarity in my thoughts and in my words. And God, I pray that the Spirit of God would help me, Lord. Say what needs to be said. And Father, I pray that you would work in hearts. I pray you'd work in life this morning. God, I pray, Lord, that you would just uh, Lord, do a mighty work, Father, through the power of your word. God, we love you. We praise you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. All right. Well, I want to I want to uh, kind of zoom out real quick and just show you. I have a chart. I don't know how, how well it's going to show up here on the screen. It's, I know it's probably kind of hard to see the words right there. But this is an overview of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, again, I'll read some of this here for you. But this yellow section, this highlighted section right here, is where we currently are. Uh, again, we're not at Chapter 7 yet, but we'll be next week. This is Chapter 6. So for chapter six and seven, this is where we are. So as you can see, I mean, we're, we're not that far uh, from the halfway point going through the Gospel of Mark. And a couple of other things I want to point out as we look at the chart right here. You see that the ministry of Christ is reaching a, a peak. Um, again, Christ is growing in popularity. As Christ goes about, he teaches the word. He performs miracles. He authenticates the teaching, uh, again, that he is spreading abroad. Um, Again, he is showing that he is truly the Son of God. He is the Messiah, and he is growing as time goes on. He is growing in popularity, not necessarily with the religious establishment, but with the multitude he is. 
Uh, even though, as we'll see, again, as time goes on, that popularity will begin to wane. And even the multitudes, many in the multitudes will eventually turn away from Christ. Uh, many of them are coming to Christ merely for the physical, for the temporal, for the healing, for the bread, uh, again, for the, for the loaves and fish. Uh, again, they're not coming for the spiritual. They're not coming for the eternal. They're not coming for the spiritual transformation uh, that is offered through Christ. Uh, something else you notice here, too, is that primarily, not exclusively, but primarily, Christ's ministry has been located in the region of Galilee. I'm going to put this map up on the screen right here. And Galilee is this region, and you can see the Sea of Galilee, which, uh, again, is where we find ourselves today. And then you have the region known as Galilee of Capernaum, Nazareth, Cana, and then Christ did pass over the sea to the other side um, earlier in the Gospel of Mark. But primarily, this is where he has been centered in his ministry as time progresses on. He's going to get closer and closer to Jerusalem. He's going to get closer to the place of, of his ultimate crucifixion. Uh, but we find here Christ has been preaching for for over a little bit over a year, um, especially particularly in the region of Galilee. Um, and we see that really, again, with what we looked at last week with the feeding of the 5,000, which was actually much more than 5,000, more like uh, 15 to 20,000. If you include the wives and the children, uh, then it'd be a much larger number than just 5,000. Then you see. Again, that Christ has fed a great multitude. He has just performed this great miracle. And he is really following this, this great miracle has reached the peak of his popularity in his public ministry. And we see that in the response of the people, not included here in Mark, but in the Gospel of John, John 6, verse 15. Uh, listen as I read this verse. Uh, this is in response to the miracle of the loaves and fishes. John 6, 15 says, When Jesus therefore perceived... That they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. All right, so you see the response of the multitude. Jesus Christ has just fed this great multitude of people. He has multiplied a small boy's lunch to feed a group of 15 to 20,000 people. Again, nobody goes away hungry, everybody's full, and they have leftovers. All right, so that is a miracle of God. That is a miracle of multiplication. But you see the people respond to Christ by coming to him and trying to take him by force and make him a king. They come to make him a king. Now, the Jewish people, as we examine the multitudes, many of the multitudes are, again, part of this unbelieving Jewish nation. Again, we see here in the response, but also... Again, through the responses throughout the gospel, really the Jewish people as a whole missed. They missed the point of why Jesus came the first time. Like I said, they were focused. Many of them were focused on the temporal. They were focused on the material. And they were looking for a political messiah, a political king who could overthrow, who could have a political revolution and overthrow the Roman government. That's what they were looking for in Christ. Not the spiritual, not the spiritual transformation that Christ had come to offer again to mankind. And these people were, for the most part, more interested in the physical and the bread and the healing. Jesus was focused on the eternal, on the spiritual. He was focused on the salvation of men's souls and the transformation that comes when a person is born again by the spirit of God. 
They were focused on political revolution. Jesus was focused on spiritual transformation from the inside out. And although one day Jesus will come back as a conquering king, his purpose in coming again in his first advent was not to come as a conquering king and usher in his kingdom, but was to come as a suffering savior. He came as a suffering servant. Luke 19 verse 10 says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. And ultimately that led him to the cross. That was all part of God's plan. That was all part of the redemptive plan of history. Again, God had planned this. Again, before the foundation of the world, God had planned, again, that Jesus would, the the Lamb of God would come into the world, that he would die for the sins of mankind, that he would be buried, that he would rise again from the dead. But to the Jewish people, a crucified king, a crucified Messiah was an offense to them. And because of that, many of them stumbled over the Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus here responds to the multitude. He gets away from the multitude. He sends them away. They want to force him to become king. Jesus says, no, I'm not going to become king. And Jesus sends them away. He sends his disciples away into a boat to traverse the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus goes up into a mountain alone to pray. We find many times throughout his ministry, Jesus would depart from the multitude. And Jesus would get alone with the Father in a mountain to pray. But we find here that while Jesus is praying, the disciples find themselves in the midst of a storm on the Sea of Galilee. If you remember back a couple of months, this is not the first storm that the disciples have been in. They've already been in one storm on the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus allowed them to be in that storm to teach them a lesson on faith. And Jesus here again sends his disciples, again knowing, unbeknownst to them, again knowing that there's going to be a storm that they go through. And Jesus again here has a lesson and has a purpose in sending his disciples into this storm. So Jesus is praying upon the land up in a mountain. The disciples are in the midst of the Sea of Galilee. And in this passage here, we find both theological lessons and also practical lessons as well for us to learn. We find theological lessons in the sense that it teaches us about the person of Christ. Uh, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Again, he is able to do miracles that no mere man could do. Again, we see his person. But we also have here uh, some very practical lessons that I believe we can apply to us today as we toil through this life. Again, as we go through storms or trials of life as well. That's really what I want to focus in on is... Yes, we'll deal with the theological, but also the practical lessons here as well that help us. As we remember these truths, will help us as we go through uh, the stormy sea of life and the trials that come thereby. So a couple of things, again, that we need to remember as we go through trials of life. Number one, the first thing we need to remember is his providence, the providence of God. Take a look at verse number 45. The Bible says in straight way he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before and to Bethsaida while he sent away the people. So following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus sends the people away. He sends his disciples into a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee while Jesus goes up into a mountain to pray. And we find the word that's used here is the word constrained. He constrained his disciples. All right, so this wasn't, this wasn't a suggestion. The word constrained, it means to compel them, or it means to even, you could say, even to command them to do this. All right, so, so this was, you could say, the will of God for these disciples. 
All right, this is this was the center of God's will was to get into the boat and to go across the Sea of Galilee. Now, Jesus, being God, again, knew full well what was in store for them. Jesus knew that there was going to be a storm that they would go through. The disciples, they didn't know that. They just obeyed their master. Again, their job was to simply do what the master called them to do. They had no idea what was about to happen. They had no idea what obeying Christ would bring into their life. The storm that it would bring into their life. But Jesus knew that. God knew that. There was a divinely appointed storm awaiting these disciples. You see, this storm was not a matter of, 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 of luck or bad luck. It was not a matter of chance. Again, God is the one who sent the storm. All right, God is the one who not only gave the command to get into the boat and to go to the sea, but God is also the one who commanded the winds and the waves. God is also the one who commanded the storm that would overtake the disciples in the midst of the sea. Now, why is that significant? I think it, it provides for us an important truth that we, remember, that we need to remember as we follow God. And I've said many times... That one of the most damaging doctrines in, in Christendom today is the prosperity gospel. You know, is this idea that you follow Christ and everything is going to be, again, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous, and you're not going to have any issues in life and any problems in life. And, uh, again, if you're, you're never going to be sick in life. And, again, nothing, again, all these things are going to come upon you. You're going to be prosperous physically and materially upon this earth. And we understand that a clear reading of Scripture teaches completely otherwise. Right, oftentimes what happens, not just according to the testimony of Scripture, but also according to the testimony of, 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 of church history and many, many lives of saints that have gone before us, is oftentimes, again, obeying Christ and saying, yes, yes, Master, I will follow you. If that means getting into the boat and going to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, I will do that. But as Christians, as a disciple of Christ, sometimes we don't know Again, what awaits us on the path of obedience? Again, our job is simply to get into the boat. Our job is not to argue with the master, but to obey the master to get into the boat and start sailing across the Sea of Galilee. All right, but we find here that as we, as we, again, walk with Christ, as we obey Christ, there are, there are many times where the path of obedience will bring us right through a storm. Again, just because you're a believer doesn't exempt you from storms and trials and afflictions and sickness and uh, disease and again all uh, again uh, disappointments and discouragements in life. Rather, following Christ often means again there's more self-denial. You know, there's taking up your cross, following Christ, and it often brings more suffering into one's life. I mean, did not Jesus tell us uh, again that again all that live godly in Christ will suffer persecution? The book of Acts tells us that it is through much affliction that we enter the kingdom of God. Through much suffering, we enter the kingdom of God. All right, but we, again, as we go through life, as we follow Christ, as we obey our master, recognizing that, that the path of obedience will likely include trials and afflictions and storms that we must go through, as a believer, I take comfort in the fact that Christ has not only called me to obey him, but Christ has also, is also in control of the storms of life. And as I go through trials, 
And as a believer, I must remember that God is in control. That God sees the end from the beginning. That he is omniscient, that he knows all things. That he not only knows, again, what the trial that I'm in, but he knows the purpose of that trial. He knows the, he knows the plan, again, of that trial. He knows the duration of that trial. Again, God is trying to work something in my life through that trial. But as I go through a trial as, the, as a believer in Christ, I, again, I, I can remind myself of these truths. God is in control. Again, God knows exactly what I'm going through and where I am. And God has a perfect plan and purpose that he is working out through the trial in my life. Now, one of the grand purposes of the Christian life, one of the grand purposes of God in saving us, according to Romans 8, 29, is to conform us to the image of his son. To conform us to the Lord Jesus Christ, to make us Christ-likeness. Right? Holiness is what God is after. To remove the sin out of our life, to put off the old man, to crucify the old man, and to put on the new man. And to live a life in submission to Christ, to live a life of holiness, to live a life of Christ-likeness. That is one of the grand purposes of why God even saved us. And God will often allow or... Again, uh, allow suffering in our life to refine us, to grow us, again, to wean us from sin and the world, to drive us to our knees in prayer, and to chip away our pride, and ultimately to conform us to the image of Christ. I so recognize next time you're in a trial, you can ask yourself, what is God trying to do? What is God trying to accomplish through this trial? Recognize Romans 8.29. This is God's purpose in everything, to conform me to the image of Christ. Again, God's goal in my life, again, instead of, instead of bucking against the trial and trying to, again, escape it as quickly as I can, recognizing, God, I want you to work out your purpose and your plan in my life through this pain, through this difficulty, through this affliction in my life. The comfort and for the Christian comes and I realize that these storms in life are not the result of chains or bad luck. Again, rather they are sent or allowed by God for my good and ultimately for his glory. They're part of his all-wise plan. And like I said, God sees the end. God knows the purpose. Again, you can't see the end. You can only see the moment that you're in. But God can see the end from the beginning. Again, and God knows what he is working in your life. Again, that, that Christ-likeness that he is bringing out in your life. And he, again, as he, as he conforms you to the image of Christ, again, that is something that we must recognize. That God does not send these storms to drown us, but to draw us close to Christ. Just like these disciples here. All right? Christ didn't send them into a storm to drown them into the, into the depths of the sea. Rather, he sent them into the storm to draw them closer to himself. To teach them lessons of faith. To grow them in their dependence and their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So remember his providence. Secondly, remember his prayers. Take a look at verse 46 through 48. The Bible says, And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And I read the beginning part of verse 48. And he saw them toiling and rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. So we see here Jesus gets away from the multitudes. He departs into a mountain alone to pray. Verse 47, the Bible says, When even was come, 
The ship was in the midst of the sea. He was alone on the land. Now, evening here, again, would have been anywhere from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the evening. It would have been the second evening of the day. The first evening would have been what we often call afternoon. Uh, Again, it would have been about 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock. So at this point in the day, again, the day was just about over. The sun was setting. It was dark outside. All right. So again, you're, you're not only in the midst of you're not only in the midst of the sea, in the midst of a storm, and the wind is contrary to you. Again, it's it's not it's not only that, but it's also it's it's nighttime. It's dark outside, which makes matters even worse for the disciples. But I love what verse 48 says. Again, and you could easily miss this if you read through it quickly. It says here in verse number 48. Um, it says, and he, that is Christ, saw them toiling in rowing. Now, Jesus is separated from his disciples physically. Jesus is up in a mountain praying, yet the Bible says that he saw them. In his divine omniscience, although he was, yes, physically separated from them, again, his eyes were upon his disciples. He knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they were going through. They were toiling and they were rowing. Uh, verse 48, the wind was contrary unto them. Matthew 14, 24, it says the ship was tossed with waves. John 6, 18 says the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So we see that although Jesus was, was physically separated from his disciples, they're on the sea. He's, again, miles away up in a mountain. Yet he sees his disciples. And in his divine omniscience, he sees them. He knows what they're going through. He sees the toiling. He sees the storm. He sees the he, he sees the, 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 the waves tossing, tossing the ship about. And this is really a great picture here of the relationship of believers with Christ in this present church age in which we are. You see, Jesus, again, he, he came to this earth. He lived a perfect life. He died a sacrificial death. Again, he died paying the price for our sins. He was buried. He rose again. And then after that, again, he ascended back up to the Father. And the Bible tells us, where is Jesus today? Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God, according to Hebrews 12, verse number 2. And Jesus is not physically with his church. And he is not physically present. He is in heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. But notice here, what is Jesus doing, again, during this church age in which we are? Again, for us New Testament saints, what is our relationship to Christ in this realm? Romans 8.34 tells us, Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. For who? For believers in Christ. Again, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. All right, the law says you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You deserve death because of that. But Jesus Christ looks at you and says, forgiven, forgiven, forgiven. Because of what he has done. And Jesus is in heaven at the right hand of the throne of God. And what does the Bible say he's doing? It says he is making intercession for who? For us. In other words, he's praying for us. He is, again, that, that's just, again, even hard to wrap your mind around that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God and that he is praying for his own. He is praying for believers. 
He is praying for those that belong to him. Hebrews 7.25 says, Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. All right, he secures our, our salvation, again, in his continual prayer for us. That's what the Bible says. He saves us to the uttermost. He saves us completely. And he shields us from the accusation or from the accuser of, of the brethren. And the disciples were physically separated from Christ. Again, he was on the mountain. They were in the sea. And so it is with church-age saints of today. And Christ is in heaven. What is he doing? He's praying for us. What are we doing? We are on earth. We are toiling through this life. And there's many storms that we must go through. But it's a comfort to the heart of a believer to recognize that Jesus sees us. He knows where we are. He sees what we're going through. And he is praying for us. He is praying for us. And he is our high priest. So remember his prayers. Also remember his presence. Verse number 48, the latter part of the verse to 49 says, And about the fourth watch of the night, he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed by them. But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit, and cried out. Right, so the disciples, again, whenever, again, Jesus knew where his disciples were. They were toiling, they were rowing, they were in the midst of the sea. They hadn't made much progress at all. Actually, John tells us, that they had only made it about halfway across the sea, 20 to 30 furlongs, that John says, which would have been less than four miles. So, I mean, they're only about halfway across the sea, and they've been rowing and toiling all night. Again, they got onto the water somewhere between 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, and Jesus, again, miraculously, again, walks across the water to them, and then he comes to them not a moment too soon, not a moment too late. It says, about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them. And the Romans would have divided uh, again their, their evening and night into an early morning into watches. The fourth watch would have been between 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. All right, so anywhere from 6, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. to 3 o'clock in the morning to 6 o'clock in the morning, again, Jesus waits all that time before he comes to his disciples. I mean, they, they've been toiling for hours. Again, hours upon hours, they have been toiling, they have been rowing, and I'm sure at this point they are exhausted. They're probably feeling a little bit hopeless at this point. Again, the storm's not abating. You know, we, 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 again, we're, we're physically getting exhausted. We can't continue doing this. It's still dark outside. Again, is there any hope left? We find here that in their moment of despair, again, Christ and in his perfect timing, according to his perfect wisdom, he steps onto the waters. He miraculously walks across the top of the water to where his disciples were. And in their moment of despair, thinking all is lost, there's probably no hope at this point. We see that Jesus came walking by. I mean, they're struggling. It's been a rough night. They're exhausted. And this, they're battered by the storm. And they've given it all they have. They've been toiling. They've been rowing. And they see, again, they, they, they see him walking by. And the Bible says that they were frightened. They cried out thinking that he was a spirit, an apparition, a ghost. But we see that Jesus came 
in his perfect timing. He didn't come any sooner. It would have been too early. He didn't come any later. It would have been too late. No, he came at the right time, at the perfect time. And so Jesus comes to us. Jesus comes to us undeterred by the storms in his perfect way, in his, according to his perfect will, in his perfect timing to aid us and encourage us and strengthen us through the storms of life. And sometimes we probably, we probably wish, again, that again, maybe the disciples, again, they're toiling, they're exhausted. Maybe they're wondering, where is the Lord? I mean, it's, it's midnight. It's one o'clock in the morning. It's two o'clock in the morning. They keep toiling, they keep working, but in his perfect timing, he comes. And so it is with us. In his perfect timing, he comes to come alongside and to strengthen us and to help us and to aid us in our struggles. I like what Isaiah, the prophet, said, Isaiah 43, 2. It says, when thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire... Thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. So God never says there's going to be an absence of storms if you follow me. Rather, there will be storms if you follow Christ. But notice, again, if you follow Christ, if, you're, again, if, if you trust in the Lord, yes, you'll pass through the waters, but guess who is with you? God is with you. You'll go through the rivers, but they shall not overflow you. You'll walk through the fire, but you shall not be burned by the fire. Let's continue on. Verse number 50. You also remember his precepts. Verse 50. It says, For they all saw him and, and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, Be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. So in the midst of their toil, in the midst of their exhaustion, Jesus came to them, although they were initially troubled by it. And Jesus spoke words of comfort and assurance and joy to their hearts. Notice what he said. He told them, first of all, be of good cheer. Again, literally, he was calling them to have courage in the midst of the storm. Again, and not, not, not a sense of self-reliance and trying to work up some courage in and of themselves, but looking to him as their source of courage. Looking to him as their source of courage and cheer and confidence. He says, it is I, be not afraid. Those are the exact words they needed to hear. They needed to be reminded of who it was that was with them. And whose presence was with them through the storm. Jesus says, it is I. Again, they're, again, they're, they're, they're being reminded that he is the one that is their master. He is the one that is their redeemer. He is the one that is their friend. He calms their fears with the truth of his word. You know, and God is the same for us today. And Jesus speaks to us, again, not in an audible voice, but through the sufficient word of God. Again, God speaks to us through his word, and through his word he speaks words of peace and comfort and joy and assurance to believers who are toiling through this life. And that is why a believer who spends all his time watching the news but never in the word is probably going to be a very discouraged and depressed believer. All right. On the other hand, again, you find a believer that's in the word of God and it will likely show in their life. All right. God's word gives us comfort. It doesn't take away the storms. It doesn't take away the difficulties, but it gives us peace in the storm. It gives us courage in the storm. It gives us joy in the storm. It comforts us in the midst 
of the storm. So we're not living, again, in a, in a sense of fear and anxiety. But again, we, we live with our hearts anchored to the truth of who Christ is and, again, what he has shown us in his word. But we must have our hearts attuned to the voice of Christ. The Bible says, says my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Again, are your ears attuned to the words of Christ? Again, do you hear the word of God? Do you, do you, are you a fruitful hearer of the word of God? Again, do you hear it and apply it and receive it and, again, meditate upon the truth of the word of God? You know, if you listen to, to your emotions, you're going to be, you're gonna be uh, depressed. You know, if you listen, like I said earlier, to, again, just what all that the world is saying in the constant never-ending news cycle, again, you're going to probably be distressed with what you see going on around you. But you listen to the voice of Christ. You hear his voice through the storm. Again, through the written word of God, through the sufficient word of God. And it is through his word that a believer can walk through a world where there is, again, there are storms going on all around you. There are winds, and there, again, there's wind, and there's waves, and again, all seems like it's going to be lost. But the believer can walk through this life with a sense of peace in his heart, and joy in his heart, and assurance in his heart, because his confidence is in Jesus Christ. His confidence is in God, the unchanging presence and precepts of God. Let's continue on. The remember his peace. Take a look at verse number 51. It says, he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased. We find here that Jesus was in complete control of the situation. All right. He had the power to stir up the waves, to stir up the wind and bring the storm. But at the same time, he also had the power and authority to calm the wind and to calm the waves in his perfect timing. And I guess it kind of ties in with what with the last point here, but we see here the presence of Christ brings us peace. It brings peace to our hearts as we toil through this life. And even better for the believer awaits an eternal peace. Again, that, that eventually will come in heaven. Let's continue on, though. We also remember his purging. Again, he brings storms into our life for a purpose, for a reason, to purge us, to grow us. To reveal to us spiritual blind spots that we have in our life, which we need to be reminded of, which we need to see. Again, it's often through storms that we grow. It's often through trials and afflictions that the believer grows. Because God reveals to us spiritual blind spots that we have in our life. Verse number 51 through 52. The latter part of verse 51 says, And they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. We see here that this storm, this miracle of Christ, it, it purged the disciples spiritually by showing them, by revealing to them spiritual blind spots that were in their life. Consider what it says here. It says they considered not the miracle of the loaves. They had seen what Christ had done, but they failed to grasp the, the immensity of Christ's power Again, in his again, this the miracle that he had just done in feeding the multitudes. If Christ could again take care of them there again with this physical provision, could he not take care of them within the storm? So why did they fail to grasp the reality of his power? And why was that? Well, it tells us here that it's because their heart was hardened, their lack of faith. Again, the, their lack of faith took away. Their spiritual perception. And I like what one commentator said. He said, lack of faith produced hardness of heart and dullness of spiritual perception. And it was their lack of faith. 
And they, they didn't fully comprehend everything that happened with the miracle of the loaf. Sure, they saw it. They, I mean, they were, they were part of it. They were part of distributing the loaves and the fish. But they didn't fully comprehend the lesson, again, of faith that Christ is teaching them. They didn't fully, fully comprehend the power of Christ again, over nature. Again, but don't be too hard on the disciples because we do the same thing. We can be the same way. And Christ teaches us through his word again and again and again. We see God work in our life, do miracles within us and in our life over and over and over again. But so often, again, that our, that our hardness of heart gets in the way of God being able to perform the work that he is trying to do. It is our lack of faith that keeps the word of God from taking root within us and bringing about spiritual change and true spiritual transformation within our life. It dulls our spiritual eyes. Again, it, it keeps us from being uh, spiritually perceptive of what is going on around us and what God is trying to teach us and what God is trying to do when we respond to him with a lack of faith, with a lack of uh, faith, with this hardness of heart. You know, but God is the same with us. God used this storm in the sea to reveal to them the hardness of their heart. Again, maybe if this didn't happen right here, maybe they would have never known that their problem was a lack of faith. But Jesus used this storm to reveal to them their hardness of heart, their lack of faith. And God will often use trials and afflictions in our life to reveal to us spiritual blind spots. I, again, we, we think everything's good, and we think everything is going great, and we think every area of our life is, again, what it needs to be in our relationship with God. But there's oftentimes spiritual blind spots, and we all have them, you know? And, and usually we're the last person to realize that we have spiritual blind spots. But God will often bring us through trials and afflictions to reveal to us areas where we need to be purged, areas where we need to grow. Again, where we have spiritual blind spots so that we can grow and we can walk by faith and we can respond to God in the way that we need to respond to God. So let me encourage you with these truths today. Again, as you go about your week, again, remember these, these precious truths of the word of God. As you go through storms of life, again, remember the precious truths of the word of God because it's not a matter of if you'll go through a storm. It's a matter of when you will go through a storm. And as you go through this life, the stormy sea of life, remember his providence, his prayers, his presence, his precepts, his peace, and his purging. And let me encourage you to meditate upon these truths. So the next time you go through a storm, you come out closer to Christ. You come out more holy, more joyful, more at peace, more confident in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. And God, I pray you take the truth that has been preached this morning. And God, I pray you to use it in the hearts and lives. Lord, of your people. Father, today has not been a salvation message. God, but I do pray, Lord, that if anyone here today has never repented and believed the gospel, I pray today would be the day when they would call upon Christ to be saved. God, I pray for believers here this morning. I pray, God, you would strengthen them, that you would help them, Lord. Lord, to remember these truths. Lord, to meditate upon them. Lord, whether they're currently going through a storm or whether there's just one right around the corner or they're out sailing through life. Lord, as the disciples sailed upon the sea and everything's smooth, but Lord, there may be a storm just right around the corner for any one of us, Lord. And God, I pray that you'd prepare us for that now, Lord. Strengthen us now, God, for that, Lord, and, and strengthen us through the, through the truth of your word. 
God, I pray you'd have your will and way in this service as we respond to your word this morning. And I pray this in Jesus' name.